Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, now Mark 13. I'm going to invite Nicole up. She's going to read this passage. Uh, So be patient. We're going to walk through it together. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for you will de- you for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for testimony to them. And the gospel must be um, preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you, uh, do not worry beforehand or predetermine and premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, by the the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look here, the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told all, you all these things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches 
and branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Thank you. Lord, help us. I recently started reading a book. It's called Quackery. Uh, the subtitle is A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything. It highlights some of the wild things we've done in history in the name of health and medical advancements and medical treatments. It talks about things like the Ottomans who ate clay to keep the plague away, or the Victorians who sat in mercury-filled steam rooms to treat skin issues, or epileptics in ancient Rome who are known to sip on the blood of the Roman gladiators that they'd purchase. There are stories in there of arsenic-filled wafers that were promised to give you flawless skin. There's uh, strychnine tonic that people were encouraged to drink for their bellyache. There were gold elixirs that were meant to mend a broken heart. It was kind of like the original uh, retail therapy, I guess, to purchase a gold elixir and have it heal your heart. But it's true, although eating a tapeworm might still help with weight loss, um, medical experts no longer recommend it like they once did. Now, I have a friend who recommended the book to me. He's a medical professional. And one of the reasons he recommended the book is he just enjoyed the history of it. But another reason he really appreciated it was the humility in it. Because the guy who compiles, or the woman, excuse me, who compiles this book and writes it is a medical professional herself who's writing it saying we need to, to look back at history and have some humility about ourselves today. In fact, in the introduction, she wrote it this way. She said, after all, this book really is just a brief history of the worst ways to cure everything. No doubt there are more worst ways yet to come. In humility, she's saying that we still haven't got this figured out, and so we need to have some humility when it comes to our arrogance as we look at other people, or maybe those even who have preceded us, and, and we look at their faults and flaws and shortcomings. And as we step back into Mark chapter 13, I think we ought to carry that same mentality today of some humility where we'd look maybe at those who have gone before us and we might feel in a moment like this, like, wow, they really got it wrong. Or we might look outside of our own tribe or our own church at other people's opinions about something like biblical prophecy, and we might find ourselves looking at them like a bunch of quacks. But we have to stop for a moment and just remember with some humil humility that there are sto still many wrong ideas and wrong suggestions, and if we were foolish enough to set a date, wrong date setting of when Jesus will arrive that I'm sure is ahead of the church still. So my goal today for you is I'm not going to set a date about what Jesus is saying here and when this will take place, but my, my goal today is to talk to you a bit about our future and then to talk to you about our response today. 
how we're to respond to these things and how this instructs us to live in the present. You remember that Mark 13, when we started it last week, we discussed how it's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus' teaching that takes place on the Mount of Olives, adjacent to and really up above the Temple Mount. He and the guys are there on the Temple Mount. It just started in Mark 13. And the guys are looking around saying, Jesus, look at this building. Look at, look at the temple. Look at the, the stones. And Jesus responds and tells them that it's all coming down brick by brick. You see, all of Mark 13 is a response to then their questions that come on the heels of that, where they then get alone with Jesus. And they ask him, well, when will it be destroyed? Which is what we discussed last week. But they also asked him, according to Matthew's gospel, when will the end be, when will your coming be, the end of the age is how they referred to it. It's Mark 13, if you look at verse 4, where at the end of it they make the comment, and what will be the sign of all these things that they will be fulfilled? The all these things, they're talking about all of Bible prophecy that we're waiting for, which is the world being made right because there's a king who's come from heaven to reign in peace for all of eternity. When is that coming, Jesus? In their minds, they're thinking, oh my goodness, if the temple's destroyed, then surely it means that some other new empire is going to be set up. The empire of God is going to rule over us. Surely it's happening all at once and Jesus will pull those apart. He'll warn them about the coming destruction, but then he'll address the future fulfillment of all the things that Bible prophecy had promised. You remember, you remember, I hope, that prophecy, one of the tricky things about it is that it often has a soon coming and far reaching implication. Remember, this is part of what makes it so difficult for us to understand biblical prophecy. It's so tricky to interpret because prophecy often has a near and far-reaching fulfillment, a far-reaching echo that fulfills. It's Jesus right now talking about present, soon-arriving events that will take place in AD 70, the destruction of the temple, but it echoes far into the future, where Jesus, speaking in the 30s about things happening in the 70s, we're still waiting for things in the 2020s to take place that Jesus had prophesied. We're waiting for a future fulfillment. So last time we talked about the soon arriving fulfillment of these prophecies. Today we talk about the future, some things that we're yet to see. So here's what we do today. We talk about not Jesus in the temple. Today we talk about Jesus and the tribulation. What we'll talk about is three different things under that heading of Jesus and the tribulation. The first is what are we waiting for? Like what does scripture teach us is, is ahead of us? What's the future going to hold for us? So what are we waiting for? The second though is what is it that we will see as the signs of the end of the age? And then the third thing is what is our response supposed to be? Now I will tell you, these are not my hobbies. Uh, we are talking about these things because we've been walking through Mark 13, or I'm sorry, Mark's gospel. We've landed at thir- chapter 13 and Jesus talks about these things. And so even for myself, with some humility, we will address these things. And as, as you dive in with me, I, I just want to give a word of encouragement and even a challenge to us today, that as we've got close to Mark 13, I started thinking about the Moravian missionaries. You might remember them from the 17th century. It's a group of people who were heavily persecuted, and because of that, they found themselves, this group of Jesus followers, retreating to a secluded piece of property. Now, there was a huge diversity amongst this group of people as far as their theology and even denominational background, but when they gathered together, they were so thankful to be safe and to be together that they made a commitment to themselves, each other, and to the Lord, and their commitment is what we know as the Moravian Creed. And because they held this creed together, they accomplished incredible things, they, they revitalize mission, global mission that had gone dormant for over 200 years, church historians tell us. 
where they prayed for over a hundred years for the nations and then found themselves just going to the four corners of the earth, doing amazing things like being sold into slavery, selling themselves into slavery in order to minister to slaves that were in remote islands. They entered leper colonies, which once they passed through that gate, they would never return, but they entered to minister to those who knew that they had the sentence of death on their heads and they too would suffer from that same illness and die with those people. But they did it because they believed that Jesus was worthy. And their creed was this. They said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. Let's fight for unity on the essentials. In non-essentials, liberty. Let's be open-handed. And in all things, charity, grace and charity. And I fear for us sometimes as Americans that we've lost the art of even just being able to do anything close to this, of, of disagreeing agreeably or even the ability to just be disagreed with that without looking or, excuse me, without losing our cool and saying that we're being attacked is something that it seems like we've lost. That's not just true of people outside of the church that we've seen in the last couple of years with all that's gone on in the world, but even inside the church, people are divided over every little piece of opinion and difference. For me personally, if, if I am only willing to associate with people that I agree with, then let's be honest, I will lead a lonely life and live in an echo chamber, and I won't even like myself because I disagree with previous versions of myself regularly. Because the, the Trevor of the future probably won't even like the Trevor of the present, the 38-year-old version of me. And so I need to learn to be gracious. And in essentials, yes, fight for unity. In non-essentials, live. Uh, live knowing that th there's liberty. And then in all things, live with charity. I want you to hear me say that uniformity is not my expectation for our church. However, unity amongst diversity is something I pray for for our church often because it's what Jesus prayed for his church. We come from very different socioeconomic backgrounds, potentially having very different political opinions or maybe even a different voting history that's represented in our room, and even a variety of different eschatological convictions and opinions about the things even that we'll study today. But as we discussed last week, we don't die on those hills, nor those lines that we should ever divide on, right? My friends, I look around here every week, and I'm so very thankful to be a part of a church that has some diversity. I love that we're multi-generational. That's something that I celebrate. That's something that I thank God for. I love that there's even racial diversity within your group, something, or in our group. I pray for more of that in our church. I love that there's diversity even in our political ideology. I love that there's diversity in opinions also about these sorts of things, eschatology. So we will not divide over these things because a DMV is not the only place that people should rub elbows with people that they think different from. It should be at the church too, but we should smile more. So, Jesus in the tribulation, what are we waiting for? That's the first thing. What are we really waiting for? There are very specific stages in the history of our universe that begin with perfection in the garden, where God creates the perfect place, and man and God are united together as one. There's harmony that's there, but then rebellion and brokenness takes place in that garden, and because of that, now life after the garden is marred and broken. Our world is fractured and splintered by sin. But then Jesus comes and redemption is purchased in a garden where Jesus is in Gethsemane saying, not my will but yours be done. Where Jesus takes step forward going to a cross where he would redeem us in a garden where he then would resurrect inside of the garden tomb. It's Jesus, what we're looking forward to is a final stage of Jesus' restoration of all things, 
where your Bible tells us he takes us back to the garden. In fact, it's Jesus looking at the thief on the cross next to him, telling him, today you will be with me in paradise. It's literally a garden enclosed. In the Greek translations of the Old Testament Hebrew text, it's the same word Jesus used on the cross as the same word that's used for Eden in the book of Genesis. He told him, today you will be with me, and the place that I'm taking to you is I'm taking you back to where it all began, the place where God and man dwelt together. We await the day where God will do that, where God will redeem all things, and where God will be united within our broken world. We're told in scripture that before final restoration of creation takes place, that God's going to bring a seven-year period of great tribulation on the earth. It's what's being talked about here in Mark 13. And that ends with the second coming of Christ, where he ends this present age to start a new age. And that new age is known as his millennial reign, where he will reign for a thousand years on the earth. And it says that healing waters will flow from his throne. And I don't know if that literally means water is going to pour out from underneath his throne or just because he's reigning here, the idea is that all of creation begins to become teeming up with life as, as life and hope and joy are sprouting and filling all of creation, beauty and unity and harmony. But at the end of that time, it tells us that humanity, even in the best of places, will rebel yet again like they did in the garden. And there's one final rebellion against God and then a final judgment that comes on the heels of that. And then on the heels of that great white throne judgment is what we call heaven, the heavenly city descending upon a, a redeemed and restored new heaven and new earth, we call it, the earth being whole again and well again. And that's what heaven is. That's where we're headed. Now, there are many in the church, or at least some, who read the Bible and also would agree that there's something else that's, that we're waiting for that's known as the rapture of the church. So when we ask the question of what are we waiting for, what you really need to know is that the Bible's final chapter is we're waiting for heaven. We're waiting for God to redeem and restore the earth and be united with it personally, to live amongst and with creation. The storyline of the book is not about going to heaven when you die. The storyline of the book is about heaven coming here again. And we don't know much about what heaven will look like. Paul has this vision or experience where he says, I don't know if I was dead or alive or what, but I know that I was there. And I know that I saw things that I'm not even going to try to repeat and put into words for you. Now, I know I'm cynical, but because even Paul was like, hey, I'm not going to try to describe heaven to you because I wouldn't do it justice. Then I look at books where people are like, let me tell you about my time in heaven and let me explain it to you and sell you a book about it. I, I'm a little jaded and I'm a little hesitant to purchase those things because because we don't know much about what it will look like, but I think what it'll look like is a lot like what the Garden of Eden was like. Like our world before sin corrupted and broken and has splintered it, and that we will enjoy it for all of eternity. Not floating in clouds, not in some disembodied experience. No, we go back to Eden. That's what's in our future. Remember, the heavenly city comes down and is united with a redeemed and restored earth Revelation 21 says it so very beautifully, where it pronounces that the dwelling place of God is once again with man. We don't know even much about what we'll do in heaven. We at least know that, that when we're there, we'll, we'll feast and we'll sing and we'll live. But we don't know all the details about it. But what the Bible is perfectly clear in telling us is what will not be present in heaven. It's perfectly clear in telling us that we'll be with God and what will not be present with us, us and God. Those are the two most important things that I, that I think we need to know is that heaven is when we are with God and that heaven is a place where the brokenness of our world will not be present with us any longer. 
That's what your Bible teaches you, is that no one wakes up hungry in heaven, or cold, or isolated there, nor lonely, or crippled, or ill, or anxious, or afraid, or ashamed. There's no community or country that will ever face the evil and godless experience of war again. There's no physician who will ever utter the words cancer again. There's no partner that will ever suffer the grief and pain of burying their spouse. There's no parent that will hold a stillborn child again. There's no friend that will prepare another eulogy. There's no person who will wake up in a hopeless desperation ever again. Do you understand that the joys of heaven will be so deeply rooted in the fact that we're there with God and that we're freed from sin's evil tyranny on creation? That's what we look forward to. Now, hang on, Trevor. I thought you said what we were talking about was Jesus in the end of the age. It's Jesus in the tribulation. You're going to tell us about what we're waiting for. So why in the world are you telling us about heaven? Because we're not waiting for the end of the world. We're waiting for the restoration of the world. That's what the hope of the follower of Jesus is meant to be wrapped up in. We're not waiting for the end of the world. We're waiting for the restoration of this world. Don't lose sight of that, especially when you feel the brokenness of the world up against you. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for heaven to be with Jesus, where where the world is made right again, where he wipes our tears away for a final time. Remember the Moravian Code, in essentials, unity and non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. There are so many opinions throughout church history, and the modern church as well, about how we get there, though. The things in between now and there, the age to come. Different opinions and schools of thought even represented, I think, within our church. But for our church, we are a premillennial church, which means that we believe that the scriptures teach us of that future thousand-year reign of Christ, which is preceded by the things Mark 13 is referencing here, which is a tr- the tribulation, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, the Bible calls it, a terrible time on the earth. But for many of us, we also believe that death may not be heaven's only means of transportation. Sure, some of us may enter heaven through death, but it's possible that all of us could be taken to heaven before we would face death. You see, the scriptures include some passages that some throughout the capital C church throughout the ages have believed to be referencing and hinting at a rescue plan or a rapture of the church, either midway through the tribulation period that Jesus is talking about or beforehand, and I'd like to think it's beforehand. And maybe it's possible that what happens is that God will preserve his church like he did Noah through the coming judgment. Or maybe it's true, like Lot and his family, that God will rescue them before the looming judgment. In Scripture, it says that we are not appointed unto wrath. Now, some of what Scripture teaches that alludes to this, to God's rescuing and rapturing the church, is found, I think, even hinted at in the layout of the book of Revelation, where in the first chapter it says, I'm going to tell you the things which... Uh, the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which takes place after this. He tells you his vision in chapter 1. Those are the things which he was seen. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, are the church age. The things that will be, it finishes chapter 3, chapter 4, verse 1, starts with a statement, metatauta, after these things. It's a period of time and a placeholder that's saying a gap of time and then something new is happening. And maybe that's implying that at the end of the church age, God rescues the church and then coming judgment and destruction begins on the heels of that. Another hint for this is maybe even in the Old Testament feasts, the feasts of the Lord that are laid out for the nation of Israel to celebrate and commemorate all that God had done. These were all things that were fulfilled by Jesus. Passover is the day that he would die. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is the day he'd be buried. The first of first, Feast of First Fruits is when he'd rise from the dead. 
And then also the Feast of Pentecost is when he would send his Holy Spirit to indwell his people. But the next feast is after a long gap of time in the fall, not just spring feast, but the fall, and it's the Feast of Trumpets, followed by Day of Atonement. That's what we believe is Christ's second coming, and the Feast of Tabernacles, a millennial reign. So how would Jesus fulfill that Feast of Trumpets? Well, some would suggest, well, maybe it's because he would return for the church, rescuing us. And that's what's found, maybe the hint of it, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says it this way. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning verse 3 and 13, excuse me, but I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In verse 16, it references the resurrection of the dead. This is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for God to unite spirit souls that are with him presently with a body that will be glorified. And it's crazy. Scientists will tell you that just a microscopic piece of your DNA holds the blueprint for all that you are. And so just a microscopic piece united with a spiritual body, God lays out the blueprint, recreates a glorified body for you, that that's what you exist in in our future. But it says that we who are alive and remain were caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo. Uh, in Latin, it's rapturus. It's from where we get our English word to harpoon, or it's another English word that we get, which is rapture, which is where we get this idea and concept from of maybe God quite possibly intervening before the things Jesus is telling us about here to rescue his church from the coming destruction. My friends, heaven is coming. That's our future, though. That's what we look forward to. Not the end of the world. We look forward to the restoration of the world. And for the followers of Jesus, for you and I, death is no longer the enemy because of Jesus and a resurrection. A wasted life is. Death's no longer your enemy if you follow Jesus. However we get there, death is no longer our enemy. A wasted life is. We're talking about Jesus and the tribulation. What are we waiting for? Well, many of us would say we're waiting for the tribulation to come and on the heels of that, the millennial reign and then a final judgment and then heaven ahead of us and maybe preceding all of those things is a rescue where God could come at any moment and with a trumpet blast rescue his people, his saints from the coming destruction. But the second thing is what is it that we might see as signs of the end of the age? So that's the second thing and we'll move through this pretty quickly. Jesus gives this prophecy in Mark chapter 13, specifically addressing things that are happening in AD 70, destruction of the temple, but then echo for us to things that we're yet to see in our future in regard to the great tribulation. He's giving warning signs that the end, not of the world, but the end of the world system was drawing near when you saw these things. Jesus gave us things that we would see leading up to the great tribulation, and if there's a pre-tribulation rapture, then these are signs that would point to a looming moment that could happen at any time where Jesus would rescue his church. 
Now, the Great Tribulation, there's more detail about that than there is about the rapture in the Bible, because even going back to the prophets of old, we're given information about what happens in that seven-year period of time, that it begins with a peace treaty that's signed between Israel and her enemies. And a global leader seemingly emerges out of this chaotic time and unites the world under one world currency, under one world government, and under that one world leader. He's going to emerge, Romans, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9 tells us, out of a restored Roman Empire, a European Union of Nations that will present this leader who the Bible refers to as Antichrist. At the three and a half year mark of that seven year period, at the midway point of where you've experienced pseudo peace, especially for the, the Jews in the land, Antichrist will break that covenant as he enters into a a rebuilt temple and places an image of himself and demands that he be worshipped as a god. It's called the abomination of desolation. It's something that Daniel writes about and that Jesus here references. Three and a half years of turmoil will continue for the remainder of the great tribulation, and at some point in time, God will intervene and bring it to an end, something that Jesus references here. He says, If the Lord would not have intervened, if he had not set a number of days to this, no flesh would survive. But he has in his mercy set an end to this. But here's what Jesus said about it. Mark chapter 12, verse 32, he says, But of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Of that day, no one knows. That day is the Hebrew idiom that points to a final day, the end of this era, the the dawn of a new era. No one knows when it's coming. And some look at this and they say, well, we might not know the exact day and down to the hour or minute, but we are pretty certain we've got this nailed down. While others would say it's much more broad than that. It's telling you that you won't be able to to even know the year or maybe even the, the time frame, the span or window of a couple of years, that you won't be able to emphatically know these things is what Jesus is telling us. In fact, they'd point to verse 33 and say Jesus even doubles down where he says, take heed, watch and pray, for you don't know when the time is. And some would point to Jesus' parable here that he gives, though, a parable of a fig tree budding, and say because of this parable that he gives here, beginning in verse 28, we have a really clear timeline for when all of this will happen, because some people take this as prophetic imagery of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Now track with me, because I realize this is a bit nerdy for you, but if this is Israel that budded and blossomed in 1948, had a sign of new life, then what biblical uh, prophecy experts during the time frame that were watching that play out in the years immediately following it, what they would say is that, that a generation in the Bible is typically represented by 40 years. And so if Jesus said the ones who see this, who see it begin to bud, and if that budding is meant to be a picture of the nation of Israel being reestablished in 1948, if you add 40 to 48, you're at 1988. But if I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then I'm doing some math. I'm taking seven from 1948. I'm landing at 1981. And what's going to happen in 1981 is Jesus is going to rescue his church. And so that's our new time frame. In fact, I'll read to you a quote from a book that was published in 1980 that claims this very thing, where here's what the author says. He says, I'm convinced that the Lord is coming for his church before the end of 1981. I could be wrong, but it's a deep conviction in my heart, and all my plans are predicated upon that belief. That's quoting from page 20 of a book entitled Future Survivor, skipping down to page 49. From a biblical standpoint, one of the reasons I believe that man has come to the end of his time is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. 
It was an event that was predicted by most of the Bible prophets and by Jesus Christ himself. As he gave signs of the last day, he told his disciples that when the fig tree began to bud forth, they would know that the summer was nigh. Even know, he said, my coming is at the door. Then Jesus said that that generation would not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. So the rebirth of the nation of Israel marks the final generation of man upon the earth in this present order. The book Future Survivor was written by Chuck Smith, who's the founder of of the, the roots of our church, which is Calvary Chapel. Even in our own tribe, and we're not officially affiliated with Calvary, but the roots of my own faith go back to Calvary. I have a deep affinity and affection for Pastor Chuck. But even within our own tribe, we've had people who have called their shot and then had to rein it back in again after the fact by saying, well, maybe we got this wrong. On the heels of him, he would never make another bold prediction like this in any of his books, but it wasn't the last time that others would call their own shot. In fact, in 1988, there was a book that was released called 88 Reasons the Rapture Would Be in 1988. The same guy wrote a follow-up book, 89 Reasons, for why the rapture would take place in 1989. And then he wrote 23 Reasons, and don't get too excited. It was 23 Reasons for why it would take place in 93. I don't know why he just started cutting reasons, but... He sold 2.5 million copies of the book, 88 Reasons That Jesus Would Return in 1988. And he was quoted as saying, and I quote, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. Some then shifted and modified their thinking going, well, maybe what Jesus is talking about, this budding fig tree, if this is a picture of Israel, maybe it's 1948, no, 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 maybe it's 1967 when they retake Jerusalem itself. So add 40 years, 1967 plus four, not really a math talk, but it's 2007 minus seven pre-tribulation rapture. Oh my gosh, Y2K. You remember Y2K, don't you? I do. I remember watching MTV as, uh, as Gwen Stefani sang, it's the end of the world as we know it. No doubt. Do you remember the band? They're terrible. But anyways, and I expected the lights to go out and all of us expected, well, most of us, something to happen. They finished the song, and nothing happened. I remember even in the church that I grew up in that my dad pastored, I remember people were upset. My mom's actually here. I remember people upset with dad that he didn't spend more time explaining how it was the end of the world because look at technology is telling us. Look what Bible prophecy is telling us. It's so crystal clear. How could you ignore this? Luke's gospel tells the same story. Remember, Matthew 24, Luke 21 also record this teaching in greater detail. And when Luke records Jesus' parable here of the fig tree, he says the fig tree and all the other trees with it. He's far less specific than Jesus was. He didn't exclusively mention a fig tree. In fact, the Old Testament itself is not exclusive in saying that the fig tree is a picture of Israel. There are 25 passages throughout your Bible that mention a fig tree, and 15 of them are found in the Old Testament. I read through them again this week. Some reference wealth and comfort, saying that people would sit under their vine and fig. The idea is that they had had wonderful things to eat, a fig, and they had wonderful things to drink, some wine. They sat in wealth and comfort. Some of it, like Isaiah 34, it references a coming global catastrophe, a fig tree does. It being shaken. Some are just talking about people having a fig tree and having figs available to them. Joel chapter 1 verse 7 seemingly does use a fig tree, though, as a picture of Israel. However, it's not exclusively used by the Old Testament prophets as always being a picture of Israel. Jesus was seemingly simply saying that when you see the stuff happening that I'm describing here, 
even the abomination of desolation, if you're alive and seeing it go down, then know the end is near. And that generation, I believe, that sees that moment is the one that will not pass away. So I think it's far less specific than maybe some have read into it. I mean, we, we've lived through this. You haven't had to been around long to see some of these things. It was 2020 when I remember working in a church and a guy coming in and saying his goodbyes, which was a little insulting because I thought if we were all being rescued, I would get to see him again, but he was saying bye to me. But he came in driving a sports car because he decided I'm going out in a financial blaze of glory because it's the end of the world. And so why not charge up a bunch of things on a credit line that I can't afford because who cares? I'm getting out of here. It was 2020 when we saw our fair share of pastors and YouTube prophetic evangelists who all called their shots because look what's happening in the world. Clearly, it's the tribulation a global pandemic, and, and a lockdown ensued, and we called it all persecution of the church and, and repackaged it that way. And then there's social unrest and racial injustice, political divide, and a tumultuous U.S. election that's thrown in there. And on top of all of that, Israel signs a peace treaty with some of her near neighbors. And so people called their shot, the end is here. It's dangerous, though. We're not in the Great Tribulation. Jesus said there will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen. Matthew 24, verse 21. We're not there. We're seeing some of the same things we've seen before, and it's messy and it's broken and none of us like it. Matthew 24, verse 28. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together, Jesus said. In other words, it's going to be so very obvious when the tribulation is underway. He said even there'd be cataclysmic signs in creation itself that no one would miss it. Remember, he said, if its days weren't shortened, no one would survive it. We're not there. Jesus said his words would never pass away. However, men's opinions about what those words mean and when they imply he will return have unfortunately passed away time and time again and have unfortunately driven people away from the church. And I think that's tragic because someone else, maybe even with good intentions, set a false and faulty expectation for, excuse me, for them that Jesus would return at any moment. It's happening now this year. And we have to be very, very careful and have the humility to not make the same kinds of mistakes. We have to have the integrity and humility to say, we don't know these things. In fact, Jesus told us twice we wouldn't know these things. We wouldn't know them with certainty. Here's how we best understand them, though. You see, according to the Bible prophecy, what should we expect to see as the end of the age is approaching? Really, this is what the disciples asked Jesus in Mark 13, 4. Tell us, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of all of these things that are going to be fulfilled? And what Jesus responded and said, he pointed directly at the abomination of desolation, something Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 had told us about, that Antichrist would come and set up an image of himself in the temple and demand to be worshipped that he would, he would demand allegiance to him and him alone, and people would lose their lives if they stood against them. So what that means then is that what we will need to find ourselves in that moment is that Jews need to occupy the land of Israel, Jerusalem in particular. And at the destruction of the temple, they left. They've since been regathered, 1948, 1967, even occupying now the city of Jerusalem. And that needed to happen, but it did not start a clock. The prophets never said that that would start a clock. They had to be a nation dwelling in the land again because, Jesus says, they have to have a temple again. 
And that's not yet happened. But we know at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation that Antichrist goes into that temple. And you have a nonprofit independently funded group called the Temple Institute who claim that they have everything that they need in order to set up a temple. And as soon as someone signs a peace treaty, they can do that. And, and you need to know, even if they did that starting tomorrow, that alone does not start a clock of the seven-year Great Tribulation. The temple could stand for years. Jesus also taught in this passage in Matthew 24 that it would be like the days of Noah as we'd find ourselves inching closer to the great tribulation. The days of Noah, there's a decline in morality, there's an increase in violence, and there was a business-as-usual attitude in that society. He said it would be like the days of Lot, again, a decline in morality, an increase in violence, but what was unique about Lot's time frame? It was a distortion of human sexuality and sexual expression. Sodom and Gomorrah were culturally known for their acceptance of sexual distortion. And he said, when you see your culture looking like this, at the very least, Jesus said, this is what you'd see. Now, is it possible that part of what he said we'd see at the destruction of the temple would also echo 2,000 years for us to also paint a picture of what we'd see in our world as that time of the end approaches? For sure, that's possible. If you also throw in what the prophet Daniel and the book of Revelation tell us, then we also need a union of nations in Europe to rise to power because they're going to produce a one-world leader. We've seen that in our world and lifetime. There needs to be advances in technology that would allow, according to Revelation, the two witnesses that God sends in the last days that would allow for the whole world to see them killed by Antichrist. And we now know that that's a possibility because of people's access to the internet via cell phone. We also needed an advance in technology so that people could buy and sell without the use of a paper currency, and we've also landed there. And according to the Apostle Paul, he wrote Timothy, and he said something that's surprising. He said that as as society advances, that morality will go backwards, that the more we advance as a society, the more that things will disintegrate and degenerate, that in the last days, that that's what you would see play out according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and that's what we're seeing. But here's what Peter said. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise to bring about a new age. That was his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. My friends, I, I ought not need to tell you that to feel convinced that the rapture and, and rescue uh, of Jesus' bride is right around the corner, that we don't need to feel certain that it could happen today. We don't have to have someone tell us that it's happening this year in order to feel motivated to love God and to love our neighbor well. We don't need that to carry out the Great Commission. Nor is the soon return of Jesus the reason that they need to hear about Jesus. They need Jesus because he's their only hope of forgiveness because he was my only hope. Because he's their only hope for salvation because he's my only hope for salvation. They need him because they're deeply broken and in need of his touch. And that's because I am deeply broken and in need of his touch. Jesus did not commission us, though, to go into the world and convince the world that the end is near. He commissioned us, go and make disciples of all nations. And I think sometimes we miss that as the church in the modern age. Now that I've cautioned you, though, about other people's bold predictions, here's mine. (laughs) Seriously, though, in a decade, we're going to reach 2,000 years from the time that Jesus was alive. And if you're a young earther, that's 6,000 years of life on planet Earth. You will see, it's not a prophecy, I'm just predicting. You're going to see people come out of the woodwork. 
I think you're, what we're used to seeing in the last two years of people prophetically calling, it's the last days and it's the end of the world and getting people in a frenzy, we are going to see that on steroids a decade from now when people will say, look, now we're at 2,000 years from the time of Christ and his death and resurrection. We're at 6,000 years of world history. Don't we need a seventh day of rest, a millennial reign to take place? Let's do all of the math and see it's going to land on this day, on this month. I'll even take a shot in the dark and say it's going to be in this range of days. Books will be sold. Don't buy them. I'm telling you now, this is what we're going to see happen. If we've seen this happen before, we're going to see it again. And here's why I bring it up. Don't let anyone or any any person or new timeline get you frantic and off mission. We get one mission. We, We were given one commission. It was to make disciples, not convince the world that the end is near. You see, in talking about Jesus and the tribulation, it's important that we know what we're waiting for, what's our future hold for us. It's important also that we try to discern what Jesus told us here that we might see as signs of the end of the age. But there's a third thing, and this is the most important in how we land the plane, and that's our response. What's our response to all of this meant to be? There is nothing wrong with you longing for Jesus to return, longing for the world to be made right, longing for those that you love who are ill to be whole again. There's nothing wrong with that. Listen, I'm soft. I hug a porcelain throne and pray for the rapture with with such intensity and such deep conviction that I am theologically correct on this. Anytime I get a stomach bug, that's how I what I turn into, where I'm longing Jesus rescue me and take me home to heaven. I get it. I'm soft. All it takes is a stomach bug for me to long to be home, but throw in how hard life can be. And absolutely, there are moments where we long for nothing more than for Jesus to rescue us from a broken world and to do what he says, which is wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's good that we long for these things. But we have to recognize there's a world of difference between predicting and anticipating. We should live. Jesus gives us enough information here to live with some anticipation. But he's also blatantly crystal clear that we won't be able to know with certainty the day, the hour that we're not to spend our time trying to put together the tea leaves and make our bold prediction. Live with anticipation, yes, but don't waste your time foolishly predicting what Jesus clearly said you and I would not be able to know. We have to have the humility and the care to be willing to admit that maybe we don't see things quite so clearly. Maybe we're like those old doctors that were describing things and prescribing things in a way that might not have been totally accurate or helpful in the end. We've got to have the same humility to say that we think, we might think that the end is near. We might even hope that the end is very near, but we don't know for sure that the end is looming quite so near. Jesus was super clear, at least to one group of people, and it was the people who are alive and will live through the tribulation. He's super clear to them that when you see the abomination of desolation, run for the hills. He's super clear for the people who will live in the middle of this, specifically in the land of Israel, wanting them to be protected and forewarned that you need to get out of here. That's as specific as Jesus gets. Everything is far less specific, though. You see, Jesus referenced things that we'd see in the world, and he he referenced them as functioning as birth pains. If you've ever watched a woman have contractions, um, it's a bit unnerving of a process, but contractions increase in intensity, in severity, and in frequency as new life draws near. They produce pain that in the end produces new life. 
It's a phrase that was used by the Old Testament prophets believing and speaking of a future hope of new life, of restoration, of creation. Jesus is saying that's what you're longing for, is the arrival of a person, not the end of the world, but the arrival of Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings who makes the world right again. Okay, now hear me say this. God did not give us information about the end of the age so that we could build bomb shelters. I don't think he gave us this information so that we could even stockpile food and ammunition. He gave us sections of scripture like the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation so that we would be compelled to buy bigger dining room tables. No, seriously though, not a bomb shelter, not just stockpile goods for me and mine, but to buy bigger furniture so that we'd invite our neighbors to join us for a meal and to hear us talk about Jesus. And I really struggle with people using a prophetic timeline that they've devised to tell people, go stockpile your goods, buy your generator, especially when they take it so far as to say, and go get your gun, because at some point in time, as things get bad, your neighbors are going to come, seeing that your light's still on when theirs isn't, that you've still got food when they don't, and when they come pounding on your door, you need to be ready to protect yourself. But what did Jesus say? He said, if they ask for your cloak, give them your tunic also. If they compel you to go a mile, go a second mile with them. If they bang on my door and it comes to that, which I don't think it will, I will pull them to my table with my family and we will freely feed them and tell them, one day you will not find another meal or another family to shake down. But on that day, remember this family who gave you freely of what we had because we believe we will live forever. Because we believe in Jesus. And we believe he not only died, but rose again. And if that's true, then I will not go out investing in a stockpile of weapons and ammunition and a stockpile of goods so that I can protect mine and my own. If God leads me to do that, it's going to be like he did with Joseph, where he stockpiled for a nation to preserve other nations. It'll be to share those things freely with others. Sorry for that. <clears throat> Jesus in the tribulation. What are we waiting for? What is it that we might see as ends of the, uh, the signs of the end of time? What is our response to be? I think our wrong response is just when we sit around and question when. Because Jesus himself said he didn't know when, and then he explicitly said we wouldn't know when. Maybe our right response then is really to ask what rather than when. That's what, Jesus, what are you giving me to do? What am I doing with what you've entrusted to me? What am I doing that has an eternal impact in the world? What, what am I allowing in my life that's taking me off mission? Our, our tendency is just to sit around and discuss the when because it's exciting, but it so often pulls us off of and away from our mission. And Jesus used this short little parable here to illustrate our need to be prepared personally for his return when he sets up his kingdom, starting in verse, 30, uh, verse 34, where he compares his followers to a doorkeeper. That was someone who was a manager and steward of his house. And he says, and I left and trusted you to take care of everything. And he said, you need to be on watch. Typically, you take the watch in three or four sections, but he's talking about one person being on watch and ready at all times. And now it's completely unlikely that the master of the house would come back in the dead of night because there's no electricity, there's no streetlights, and there's robbers and bandits on the road. No one would be so crazy as to travel in the middle of the night to come back, and yet Jesus is saying, be prepared at the times you least expect it. Now listen, he's saying you should prepare, be prepared 
even when it seems unlikely that your master comes home. It's possible, please see it with me, that Jesus' point may be different from what some of us initially were thinking. His point was that he didn't know when he'd return. His humanity was seen when he says, I don't know the day or the hour. And he's clear in saying that we will not know or expect it either. His point was that we have to be ready and motivated to do our assigned task regardless of if you think all the stars have aligned and all the signs are in front of you. Our response is that we shouldn't be consumed with when rather than what. Our response is that we shouldn't be divided over these things. Our response is that we should not bypass compassion because of these things. I don't know if you remember the first day that Ukraine was uh, being invaded by Russia. It was happening on live TV where US news networks were showing it on live TV. And if you're like me, I was watching one of them and then I remember seeing a clip after the fact of a major news network that was showing Russian troops invading and the commentator saying, what this represents is a war, what this represents is loss of life, what this represents is the end of civilian life, this is tragic. And with that, it shifted then to a commercial. I don't know if you saw this. It was a happy hour commercial. And people instantly went after this network saying, like, what a bad look. Compassion, empathy, escape it all happy hour at Chili's. It was the next morning that a talk show, a morning show, had a group of women sitting talking about this is tragic, this is so sad, the loss of life, and one of the women spoke up and said, yeah, I just can't believe it. My vacation to Italy was interrupted by COVID two years ago, and it's going to be pushed back again. This is just ridiculous. Do you know how many people this is going to inconvenience? The Christian version of that is that we see things like this happen in our world, and our response is we rub our hands together and go, oh, 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 let's look in Bible prophecy. Is it all going down? We need to be very careful that we don't reflect the same ugly thing we see in the world, which is a lack of compassion, because we're compelled just to lean in and go, hang on, so Russia and Ukraine, are they all in that final battle at Armageddon? I know all those other nations have one thing in common. They're Islamic-run nations who hate the Jews, but Russia is also a part of it. Is Ukraine maybe quite possibly a part of it? Long before our mind goes there, and maybe those are things worth looking into, long before our mind goes there, we have to be drawn to people who are hurting like Jesus was. The wrong response would be to, to be chasing insider info and looking for the, the, the latest take on what it all means and when we're getting out of here. I think so much of that, at least in my own life, is rooted either in fear or pride. Fear because I'm anxious because things seem out of my control and when fear motivates me to look towards anything, I'm real quick to grab onto things that are not true. And if it's me and pride, I'm wanting to have inside information. I'm wanting to feel in the know because that's empowering. That is also equally broken and true. I have to guard the gateway of my heart to be careful what motivates me in these areas of Bible prophecy. I need to be most careful that it doesn't disengage me from my calling to engage with this world. Because sharing prophecy update videos on social networks does not equate to making disciples, which is what Jesus called us to do. We should never trade our commission for escapism. I need to land this. But as you can tell, I have, I have deep concern. I long to be with Jesus. I do. For some of you, I know what's going on in your life this week even. You long to be with Jesus. Your life is up against what feels like hell. I long for these things. 
But my hope is not in being rescued. My hope is being in the place where things are restored. My hope is not in the end of days. My hope is in the restoration of days. My hope is in being with Jesus, and I believe he could come this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or at any time, but I believe that what I'm to do is to do what he told that steward. What he told them is that he had entrusted something, an assignment to them. All of us have an assignment to fulfill. All of us have something to carry out. He's entrusted us with things, and and that creates an assignment for us. We've got to do something with what he's entrusted to us. That's our mission and commission from Jesus. We have to engage with a broken world. And my fear is that for some, we've laid down that mission because we're so very excited about maybe, just maybe, all of the signs are aligning. And if they are, then and that's your conviction, then great, engage with the world even more than ever. Jesus finishes with this little story where he says, no one knows the day or the hour, only my Father knows. In case you guys can come on up, we're going to transition to communion with this. But he says, no one knows the day or the hour, only my Father knows. And maybe it's true, Jesus in his humanity, he doesn't have an answer for the specifics of this moment, but also there's an image that's being painted, and that's the image of a young husbandman. Because in ancient cultures, if a young man fell in love with a bride or a woman, he would go to her father and he would pay a bride price, a dowry. Now, before you jump out of your skin about the purchasing of a bride, that money would be often set aside for the bride so that if the husband died or abandoned her, she then had some security to live on. So he was not just, for lack of a better word, purchasing the bride. He was purchasing her trust, saying, I value you so much that look what I'm giving to your family to set aside for you because I believe you're worth all of that. And that will protect you regardless of what happens in our future. But then the young man, if his betrothal was accepted, he would go away to prepare a place for his bride. And the imagery is quite clear with what Jesus would say, that I go away to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. But then Jesus would say, but I don't know the day or the hour, only my Father knows. In Jewish history and culture, the Father alone would know when the dwelling place was done. The Son would be so excited, cutting cordons and all of those things, ready to come back for his bride, to go rescue her, to grab her. And the father would wait and say, no, this needs more attention. No, this needs more detail. No, you're not quite done yet. And so the son would continue working until the father would tell him, now is the day. Now is the time. And then the son would be dispatched to go and rescue his bride. And maybe that rescue is the end of the tribulation. Maybe it's midway through. Maybe it is beforehand. I'd like to think so. But what we're being asked to do is to trust him, aren't we? That he's going to do what he promised to do which is not just to get us, it's to redeem and restore us. The imagery is asking you to trust the one who says, it's not yet time, it's not your time, but will you trust me in the process? Will you trust me as you wait? Will you trust me that I will wipe tears, that I will make things right? Like I said, I know for some of you, you're going through so much heartache right now. The passage doesn't just tell us about doom and gloom. It tells us about hope of glory. And it's Jesus inviting us. He has to carry out our assignment, but to trust him while we do it. And so, Jesus, we pause to tell you that we do trust you. The reason we trust you is because you paid a dear price for us. You purchased not just us, but Jesus, really our trust even, 
Our faith, our hope is placed in you because you would bleed and die, giving all that you could for us on a cross. Jesus, thank you that you loved us that much. Jesus, thank you that you'd give your life for us. Jesus, we look your direction as we celebrate communion this morning. It's where our minds and hearts go. The one who's worthy of our trust, who bled and died on a cross for us. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.